Before the break, we were taking a look at some apocalyptic predictions that have been made over the last few centuries. Well, here's another one. A woman in Chicago with the alias Marion Keach said she'd received a message from aliens that a flood would destroy the earth on December 21st, 1954. She said her followers would be beamed up to safety. No aliens showed up, no massive flood engulfed the earth. And for some Christians, the end is May 21st, 2011. According to their biblical calculations, that's when a massive earthquake will send the world into turmoil, leading to its ultimate demise on October 21st. Some of those members are so convinced that doomsday is upon us, they've left their homes, their jobs, their families to travel the country and warn people that the end is near. We travel to as many states as possible to proclaim the fact that May 21st, 2011 is the day of the Lord's return. When we caravan, we see people that give us the thumb. They say thumbs up. We also see people that unfortunately give us the other, the other finger. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Welcome back to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. It is episode 65, and it is Saturday, May 21st, 2011. The end is here, Kevin. What are we going to do? Um, We're going to talk some movies. Okay, that sounds yes, good. Yes. <laughs> as usual, I am Paul Fox, and here with our End of the World podcast, joining me, as always, from a secret location, a hopefully a safe location, here in the Fragrant Harbor, is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hello, everybody. And also, we're very fortunate to have with us today, Mr. Tim Youngs, back, fresh back from uh, Udine. Hi there. All right, so, you know, uh, before we get into the news and get into the, the talk of stuff, I mean, it's uh, it's officially the 21st here. Um, my world hasn't ended quite yet. Kevin, how about yours? Well, I don't know. I mean, Cecilia Chen did reconcile with Edison Chen, so I, I see the apocalypse coming, <sighs> and I think there's a bit of a cold wave in, in hell yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I made the mistake of going and watching Pirates of the Caribbean at a morning show today, so not probably the way I want to end my existence on the planet. Uh, how about you, Mr. Youngs? Uh, you, are you prepared for the end? Oh, I'm patiently waiting. Patiently waiting, yeah. <laughs> I think that's the best advice we can give anybody It's just to... Go about your business and uh, patiently wait for that earthquake or that tidal wave or uh, the Christians all flying up to heaven, whatever the case may be. But we're not here to talk about the rapture. We're not here to talk about the end of days, as interesting as that might be. We are here to talk about movies. This is the show where we talk about films from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between, even end of world stuff. And on our show today, we're going to be talking about uh, the latest Aaron Kwok film, The Detective 2 the sequel to the 2007 film that he starred in. And for West Green, we'll be talking about uh, the new comic book. Uh, it's actually based from a Korean comic book, if I understand the history correctly, a uh, film from Hollywood called Priest. 
Uh, but before we get into that, uh, let's talk a little bit of news. All right, so um, no real news stories that we want to cover this week because we do have Tim with us, and we're very glad he can join us today. He's going to talk a little bit with us about his experience in the recent uh, Udine Film Festival over in Italy. So, uh, Tim, this is a, a thing that you work with every year, and you're, you're quite active in both the buildup and, I guess, in the events going on at, at the festival. So how was this year? Um, it wasn't too bad, actually. Um, it was the 13th year of the film festival. Um, it was, I think, a much larger program that we normally do. Uh, there were two retrospectives this year, which you've covered already. Uh, there was the pink film retrospective, Late at Night. And we also did Asian comedies. Um, so both of those were pretty wide-ranging. Uh, the pink films retrospective... Uh, went on right through the, the length of the festival, and the the comedies uh, was was a large affair, covering several countries at the same time, and also had guests from Japan and Hong Kong. Mm. And you also had the uh, special award we talked about going to um, Michael Hoy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, he he was a great guest. Um, he came along. We showed four films with him, starting with The Warlord, but also going through The Private Eyes and Chicken and Duck Talk and Games Gamblers Play. And uh, he, was, he was a gracious guest. He, we did a uh, Q&A uh, there, and he, he had fantastic responses. Um, no, it, that, that was a pleasure. Um, seeing some of his films again in the cinema was a treat, of course. Um, and no, that, that, that was just great. I, one of the great things for me about Fari's film is that we've been able to cover some of my favorite filmmakers. Uh, and Michael Ho is definitely up there. Uh, we had a smaller Hong Kong program than uh, we normally do, I think. Uh, this year, the Hong Kong program for modern Hong Kong films was only, uh, well, there are only six films. Uh, seven if you count The Lost Bladesman. Yeah, and would you, would you attribute that to a decline in the quality of films or a decline in the number of releases available? Actually, I would have, well... Part of it is what's available. Um, every film festival runs into the same problem. You, you can have a wish list and it just simply won't, won't pan out. Uh, there are so many reasons why you can't show a film at a film festival. Uh, sometimes the distributors just aren't interested. Sometimes there's a local distributor that you have to deal with. And you, we, I remember you brought this up when you were talking about Sex and Zen 3D. Um, sometimes films are just hanging out for another festival. Um, and you simply can't can't get at them. Hmm. Um, but, but the other thing that that I think you know, came into play this year was simply that the retrospectives were so large. Uh, we only had space for six films in the end, but I think we could easily have shown more from Hong Kong. Last year was not a terrible year for Hong Kong film, and there were films that we didn't show, uh, like, uh, say, A Legend Is Born, Ip Man, or um, Once a Gangster. Um, or even All's Well Ends Well 2011. All of those could have played very well. But we simply ran out of space at the end. Which, which country had the, had the most films this year at the festival? Uh, South Korea, I think, had a huge amount of new films. Mm. Um, Japan also had a large number of films. But once you brought in the retrospective of, of sex films from Japan, obviously their, their side of things really spiked. 
Uh, so mm. there was an awful lot of Japanese presence in the program. Mm. I think the Korean films had a pretty high profile. They had a lot of evening slots. Uh, evening galas at the film festival are really reserved for the major uh, crowd pleasers. Uh, so Korean films were quite heavy at that point. Uh, also, China films. The, mm. the lineup of China movies was not that huge, uh, but we did start the festival with, with mainland Chinese films. Mm. Uh, Welcome to Shamatown opened the festival, and that was followed by Lost Bladesman later that night. Mm. And closing night, we had uh, What Women Want, mm. uh, plus other films, obviously, Aftershock won the Audience Award, uh, which you uh, also brought up last week and yeah, how to ha- i mean i had mentioned a little bit of my surprise with with regard to that were you surprised by that pick um yeah because actually um yeah i i i didn't expect it to win i i could understand under the hawthorne tree winning and that came in number two i could understand that winning because the audience there is very mainstream actually uh, sure they specialize in um asian cinema but they have very mainstream tastes and they're there to be uh, entertained. If a film, I think, if a film has you know cute children and you know a feel-good ending, you, you'll find it voted up. Uh, in the case of Aftershock, I think people were presumably in tears. I didn't attend a screening, so uh, I'd seen the film already in Hong Kong and didn't see it again there. Uh, so I can only guess. The voting at Far East Film is basically by ballot. At right after the end of the screening. Mm. So everybody, as they enter the cinema, uh, is given a tear slip with numbers one, two, three, four, five, and they tear the number with their vote and then drop it in a ballot as they leave the, the theatre. So you're seeing votes based on immediate reaction. Perhaps Aftershock had you know, the audience left very much touched, perhaps by the old man at the end of the film. I, I really don't know. Was it also, well, obviously, then the film was probably very well attended. Oh, it must have been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's a large theater, by the way. It's uh, 1,200 seats uh, with an enormous, enormous screen. And the sound is huge. Uh, yeah. As a cinematic experience, there, there's simply nothing in Hong Kong that can compare with this. Um, plus, you can get a very, very receptive audience. So yeah. all of those things can also come into play. Uh, Under the Hawthorne Tree is is a smaller film. Mm. So it would have looked fabulous on that screen, but maybe it wouldn't have felt like the same kind of large experience that Aftershock would have delivered. Mm. And speaking of Hawthorne Tree, tree, just to jump uh, off the subject for a minute, uh, I I saw that was out on uh, DVD. There's no Blu-ray for that yet, is there? No, Echo is not very huge on releasing their films on. Blu-ray, at least mm-hmm. even immediately, at least. I mean, Lust Caution, I think, was on Blu-ray, but uh, no, I mean, they didn't even release um, a simple noodle story on Blu-ray. They, I think, they released a DVD very late, and they released, they didn't release a uh, Blu-ray either. So, no, Echo yeah. is very much behind on the Blu-ray game, yeah, uh, for whatever whatever reasons. The, the whole, That's the, a real shame. Yeah, the uh, whole Blu-ray thing is a bit of a mystery to me. I was, I tweeted earlier. I was, I, I'm in a mood to watch dinosaurs. And I thought, oh, I, I want to watch Jurassic Park or Jurassic Park movies again. Let me go pick up the Blu-rays. There are none. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's all this trash out there on Blu-ray that probably doesn't belong on Blu-ray in terms of the quality of, of the filming and the cinematography. And then you've got, you know, really great movies. I know that Star Wars is, is coming out later this year, finally, and there's some disappointment based on what I've read about already for that. But 
just really surprising. And I guess it's the same for Chinese films as well. Well, Jurassic, so Jurassic Park, just for a little digression, uh, Universal was a big supporter of HD DVDs. So uh, it was actually released on HD DVD. But when you know that went away, now Universal is taking an even longer time to bring back all those titles for Blu-ray. I, I assume it's for some kind of anniversary release or some kind of big package. Mm. So yeah, it should be coming, but they want to make a part. want to make a very big deal out of it. Mm. That's part why. So what was the attendance like to sort of jump back on on topic um, mm. in terms of uh, international attendees and and local attendees? Um, the festival is pretty international. Um, you get a lot of students coming around from all over Asia. Uh, oh, sorry, all over Europe. You do get festival delegates from pretty much all over the world. Uh, you get a decent amount of press uh, coming in as well because the festival not only has quite a lot of premieres in one place, but it also has um, a good number of guests. And uh, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot uh, scheduled for them, uh, plenty of press interviews and the like. Uh, so, so you get a, a pretty decent uh, amount of people traveling to the town. The local attendance is also a big factor. A lot of people do uh, you know, treat it as, as a town event and come in the evenings. You'll find dignitaries as well on some of the major screenings, local dignitaries. Um, but a large part of it is, is uh, you know, a cinephile audience. You, in the last episode, you were asking about or you were talking about the Black Dragon. Mm. category, uh, which is kind of a hardcore cinephile uh, body. That's the one that uh, the Japanese film Confessions won, right? Yes. yes. The, elite, the elite category, right? That's what they, it's called. Essentially, uh, people that uh, are in the Black Dragon category uh, are people who have paid a, a higher price uh, to get essentially a season pass to the festival, but also a reserved seat in the theater. So there's a theater... Uh, their seat is actually labeled with their name. Uh -huh. uh, so I think they had something like that here for the uh, HKIFF. It was called the F-Cube or, yes. or, or something like that. And they had this really high level, like 35,000 Hong Kong dollar membership yeah. or something. Or And, and I it think was, they only had two members or something. Yeah. It, it didn't last. The, the one in, in uh, Far East Film Festival is... is pretty popular actually and I think it's a good deal uh, it in includes the books that the festival publishes every year the reserved seat is a big deal um, yeah. because so many people do try to crush into the cinema sometimes um, and so they vote separately they have their own box uh, for for votes after after each film that's interesting I wonder if uh, they'll try and bring something like that back here um, so then how many people uh, voted for the black dragon? category then i don't know i don't know how many people are actually in that that group it's quite a large number uh, i yeah. i think the number of black dragon people this year was actually up because i saw a large number of reserve seats compared to say last year and the year before so are you are you uh, unable to participate in that because of your standing on the committee or i i could i could if i want yeah. uh, generally i i don't mm. um one of the things is I arrived there with jet lag and I could fall asleep in a film. So, so I'm not going to take that little tear sheet. That's, and then hey, that's standard operating button. procedure for Mr. Ma. Let yeah, me tell I you. I don't have to fly. I don't have to fly to get that. To <laughs> I think the last three films we've watched together, I've just casually <laughs> glanced over to my right to see his head doing the fishing move or something. 
And uh, it's just every one of his reviews as well. <laughs> <laughs> Soon enough, you guys are going to put pillows on your shoulders if you sit next to me. Yeah. Um, well, you, you had mentioned uh, sex and, uh, 3D Sex and Zen before, a film that we've talked about quite extensively uh, here on this show. And we talked a little bit about why it didn't get to go, I think, when Ross was was visiting. Yeah. Um, but we haven't really got a chance to get your thoughts on it and whether you feel because I mean this they they were doing this this uh, this pink movie um, retrospective. Um, but what what about what about three D sex and Zen? Do you think that that is is uh, festival worthy? I guess is the appropriate word to say. I think so because you're going to get a crowd while the film is still fresh and you're still able to show it at a festival before a national distributor can jump in. Sure. I, I, I can see a good reason for it. it, it it's, a, it's an easy midnight show. I personally am not a big fan of the film. Mm. Um, I think the second half of the film, when it becomes so sadistic, is really ugly. And it's a bit of a shame after the first half is so entertaining. Mm. I, we, we were definitely chasing it uh, for Far East Film. But the problem there was there was a local distributor and they had their own plans. Uh, the film's getting released initially in, in July, I think. Mm. And they, they just had their own plans. We, we've already gotten a release date for DVD, right, Kevin? Yeah, June 30th. You can wow. buy us Asia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I want to ask, I think um, I've, earlier in the year, um, I think the, 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 the festival's... Um, the people who run the festival, they, they started their own uh, distribution company. Is that right? In Italy? They've, they've had it going for a while. Actually, okay. they were distributing films before. Um, right. But under the name Far East Film, they were doing it in tandem with a, with a video company called Ripley's in, mm-hmm. in Italy. And they released films like PTU that way, mm. and Linda, 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 Linda. Mm. Um, since then, they've actually gone further, and they've started a company called Tucker. And it means that the people who run Fari's film are now re- releasing films like Confessions. Not Confessions. Mm. Sorry, not Confessions. Uh, Detective D, I think. Yes, uh, Detective D yeah. was one. Um, they've obviously done Confessions. No, I keep saying Confessions. Um, <laughs> Departures. 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 <laughs> they both end in this. And <laughs> yeah, they, they've also picked up, um, gosh, the Su Chao Pin film as well. Uh, Reign of Assassins. So, yeah. so, so has that helped them uh, get films this year then, this past year? I don't know. I, I don't think so. Uh, the, the two operations are really separate. Uh, you'd mm. notice uh, the lineup of Hong Kong films this year, which we haven't mentioned, by the way. Don't Go Breaking My Heart, The Drunkard, Lover's Discourse, Perfect Wedding, Punished, and The Stool Pigeon didn't include either of the two films that they picked up earlier. That's uh, right. The Choi yeah. Hak film and the Su Chao Pin film. Uh, in both cases, they have their own plans to release them later in the year with separate promotion plans. Um, the films had... So, yeah. Films had already played, of course, in, in Venice. So, you know, the, the premiere angle that so many festivals are interested in now uh, wasn't there. I mean, that's interesting because I figured they would be like um, Edco here in Hong Kong with their own Hong Kong Asian Film Festival where they would premiere some of their own films, the films they, they've grabbed and put it in the festival, and then they can set up a release to kind of hype up a release later on. So I thought they would take advantage of that in Unne as well. Yeah, I mean, it would be nice, too, because the theater is so lovely that uh, seeing, you know, Detective D on that screen would be such a treat. Uh, but then again, uh, by not showing it, uh, you do get other smaller pictures in. Uh, we were able to show things like The Drunkard, 
for example, this year from Hong Kong, uh, which may have been squeezed out by a film like Detective D. Mm. So what was your, <clears throat> of, of the Hong Kong films that were shown, what was your favorite? Um, actually, to be honest, my favorite films this year were in the comedy section. Uh, the Hong Kong films we had in the comedies were great. Uh, the earliest one we showed was, actually, no, there were two from 1961, The Greatest Civil War on Earth, and also How to Get a Wife, which is sometimes called Chase. Um, we also showed, um, gosh, the, the, the Michael Ho films I mentioned earlier, and also Pedicab Driver. And Pedicab Driver would be the best thing I saw at the festival. Mm. Mm. Yeah, was. That was just astonishing kung fu comedy. And that's another title that uh, is like impossible to find oh, absolutely yeah. that, that, that's it's a real shame uh, it, the print we showed was not in fabulous condition uh and it had burned in korean subtitles down the right hand side <laughs> uh, but but it did not matter the the everything about that film the action the staging the oh it, it, it's it's just phenomenal so that was really the treat of the festival for me um, I saw films from other regions that I quite liked as well. Um, there was a small Thai film called A Crazy uh, Little Thing Called Love, kind of mm. a coming-of-age film, which I knew nothing about going into the festival and, and really enjoyed. Um, there was a wonderfully stupid action film from Thailand called... Oh, uh, <laughs> Bangkok, Bangkok uh, Knockout. Yeah. Bangkok, Knock Bangkok Knockout. That was brilliant. It's, <laughs> it's just the ultimate in bad cinema, but with astonishing fight scenes and yeah the, they, they were really really good i i enjoyed really the older films mm. uh this year though the, there was a lot i wanted to see but unfortunately i had clashes for so i couldn't get along to um oh a korean film i liked was cyrano agency oh yeah that's a great that's a pretty enjoyable movie yeah yeah really really pleasant uh yeah. not really a romantic comedy is it Nah, yeah, it's very much a gimmicky one of those gimmicky. It had romances, I think. It it was it's fairly romantic comedy ish, but yeah, it's a very enjoyable film, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's another one that I I turned up at the festival and just went in for, and was was really re uh, rewarded by. It, so good, good stuff. So when will uh, now that the festival has has passed? When will work on uh, the fourteenth begin for you? Pretty much now, I, thinking of retrospective ideas, um, they can take a while um, to put together. The Asian comedies retrospective uh, was really hatched a couple of years ago. Um, these things can take a while, especially once you're dealing with rights holders for old films. Mm. Uh, there have been times in the past where Far East film has actually made new prints. Uh, we've done that in Hong Kong for films like uh, uh, Winter Love, the Choi Yoon film. Um, we've also been able to work with the film archive on, on these series. And, and that can take a while. That can take a while to put together. Uh, so really the work begins now. I think actually picking films normally is done in the final two months of planning. Uh, mm. the, the, the modern films. Uh, part of that is because you're seeing films that aren't released yet in film companies. You have to wait for Film Mart to see some films for the first time. And the Film Mart only happens in March. Mm. Uh, sometimes you're right on deadline at that point. Um, so, yeah, no, it, it, it's really through the year, but the, but the major burst of activities at, at, at the start of the year. Interesting. 
Um, so what advice would you give for uh, the young person out there, the student, the, the rising film buff who is interested in doing the kind of thing that you do, you know, working in, with, with festivals and, and getting involved, uh, you know, with maybe not necessarily Udine, but maybe a, a festival that they have that's closer to them or maybe with Udine? Would you, would you have any advice on how to get started in something like that? Oddly enough, someone was asking about this uh, when I was at, at Faris Film this year. The, I was lucky. I, I was very, very lucky in that people came to me uh, for Faris Film Festival. Uh, same thing with the Hong Kong International Film Festival. I do bits of writing for them. They came to me. So, again, it was just good fortune on my part. People that are actively seeking out uh, film festivals to work with can actually volunteer. I mean, at the most basic level, uh, you can go to the festival that you like and ask if, if you can help out. Uh, the Hong Kong International Film Festival has a large number of volunteers. I've seen it at other festivals around the world that I, you know, like that I, I, I visited the Brisbane Film Festival, for instance, and saw many volunteers there. Um, that is one way to go. Another way is to take your expertise to the people who work on the programs and see if you can become involved that way. Um, some people start their own festivals. But that, that's, <laughs> well, that, that's just brave. <laughs> See you next year in my house. Yeah, my yes. house. Yes. The, the Kevin Ma Film Festival, yes. where everyone falls asleep. <laughs> Hot milk and pillows provided. All right, um, all right. Let's let's. We've, I think we've uh, covered most of the things we wanted to discuss about Udine. Um, let's move on to our second topic. Not really news related, but uh, something that uh, I wanted to cover. David Harris wrote in to uh, the website last week and basically had a, a, a question, a comment question, saying, and he said, he said this, he said, is it just me or is there, is it the case that the vast majority of Hong Kong Blu-rays are Region A locked these days? Uh, seemed to, to be a pretty even split a year or two ago. Not that it's something that bothers me since I have a Region A Blu-ray player or, or I got a Region A Blu-ray player in Hong Kong last year. Um, Kevin, you'd probably be better to answer this because I came into the Blu-ray game a little late. Uh, mm. But I think everything that I've got on Blu-ray is is Region A, um, and even a lot of the DVD stuff that's being released now is Region Three. I think the days of the free or the all-region, you know, universe or or Maya DVDs is gone too, isn't it? Yeah, I think. I mean, just a progression of technology. I mean, they realized that possibly these overseas sales are eating eating into their dealing with a uh, overseas distributor because they're making these things available for everyone so you know it's it's normal to enforce uh, region codings um in order to protect the uh regional interests of your film um it's actually it's better with blu-rays because um I had to ignore the the people in the UK, but Region A means you know everyone in the US and and uh, <clears throat> and Hong Kong can view the film, so it's actually a better thing than than before. Um, but yeah, I mean this is just another case of um, distributors trying to protect their regional interests. I don't think it's um, a new trend because uh, a lot of Hong Kong films are now Region Three. Um, all Asian films, uh, Japanese films, Korean films, of course, they would be. Region A locked because again the deal of uh, regional interests. Um, so I don't think it's a really serious or big problem. Um, 
in fact, if you're in America and you want to watch something without having to buy a region free uh, player, I mean, Blu-ray is the way to go because then you share the same region of Hong Kong. Yeah, but I mean that's that's that that's the thing. All it does is open up the technology market for region free players. You yeah. Know? I mean, yeah. because my, excuse my, my dad as an example, he buys stuff from Amazon UK, from Amazon Europe. Um, he buys, <laughs> I, I send him stuff, you know, and he just went online and he bought, he, I, you know, it was a little bit more expensive than what he would have spent at a Best Buy or a Walmart, but he got a region free player, you know, so the, it's not really working that, you know, that their, their idea of like limiting to, to save distributors for the true, cinephile who's going to take the time to get a lot of this stuff is it well i i think they're not too worried about a cinephile because i mean how many how much percentage of a film's potential audience are going to go out their way to find a, a, a region free player because some of these probably the most people who just want to give these movies a chance won't even bother don't even know these technology stuff um i think if you do the math, it's just better to lock it down. That's really the best they can do. And then if people really, really need to get to it, then they'll find their own way anyway w w without waiting for them. So they figured, you know, it's just not really a fight fight that's worth fighting all the way to the end for. I mean, they did all they can. Yeah, yeah I guess you're right. Tim, what's your take on the whole, I mean, region thing? I've, I've ranted on this issue before. I wish they would just kind of do away with it and do away with them. Or, or at least make the digital domain sort of one region, you know, and instead of having everything locked down by credit card or address or anything like that. What is your, I mean, because you get a bit more of an international perspective dealing with distribution and the fest festival and everything. Yeah, I mean, I can understand why uh, companies <clears throat> want, want region coding. Personally, I, I dislike it. Um, but I, I, can, I can get why they're doing it. Frankly, if you're talking now about this region A issue, I, I think that is at least preferable to what happened with some films where they actually dropped the English subtitles on, mm. on, on DVDs. Mm. Um, yeah, there are some examples. With, um, what was it? Uh, Jet Li's movie, right? Um, uh, most echo, echo Chinese stuff. Um, exactly. Was, yeah. it, was exactly. it Fearless? or Fearless, um, I think it was Fearless, yes. True, my true legend has English subs. Uh, Simple Noodle Story did not have English subtitles. And some Thai movie. films in Hong Kong as well. Wasn't, yes. Yes, like some of the Tony Jaa films. Yeah, and, Bak, yeah. I mean, that's very effective in protecting regional interests. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there was a, what did I just order? Um, a Blu-ray of uh, the Appleseed sequel that uh, John Woo directed. Because the local version had... Uh, the local version had a Cantonese audio track and an English audio track, but I wanted the original Japanese audio track with English <laughs> subtitles, and they didn't have that. The, the local Hong Kong version doesn't have that, so I had to order it from the U.S. So, just really weird, you know, the the hoops you kind of have to jump through as a consumer to to get at some of this stuff. I mean, I do understand it, and I I do understand that they make money with you know these distributor partnerships, but. It just seems like such an old, archaic model that, you know, in the age of that we're living in now with digital distribution and everything, uh, companies shouldn't need to go through distributors anymore. But there is no other way. I mean, the way that you still have to have some kind of time between releases of certain films around the world because of marketing and things like that. Um, and as long as 
we can't find a global advertising campaign for all movies. You know, as long as we can't find one of those, there will always have to be some way to protect the film so that it doesn't get to the region where it's not supposed to. It just, that's really the real, that's the way of the world. And that's, if we really, really care about the film, um, of course, we'll find our way to see it. Um, but when it comes to percentage of how many total total audience that will end up paying to see that movie at their local countries, you know, how much do we really add up to? But, you know, I, I, I still think that, it, you know, somebody creative could come up with a system sort of like pay-per-view or, or something that's, that's truly global, truly international through some kind of online system. And as long as you've got a service that allows you to pay using international currency, something like PayPal, where, you know, they might charge you a currency conversion charge or something. But as long as you can pay through that system, you can get access. So, you know, if you want to see, um, I don't know, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, day one, right? You can watch it online on a big home computer or, or pump it over to your home TV. You simply go online, you pay for it right then and there. And, and it's done. And it goes <clears throat> directly to the filmmakers or with a commission to that service you know the, the whatever the hosting service that they're going through well um, then you got the theaters you got the theaters they're not gonna ever they won't ever uh uh allow for that because then that that takes money out of their their pockets especially with tempo but, but movie. that but that's yeah. happening now i mean that's yes. how that's how i got to see monsters but on itunes before it was, it was like five days before it was playing in the theaters Yes, the theaters they don't care about the little films, but the way they can they can stop you from doing it is to block your other tempo films so that you don't do it for any films. Yeah. It's there's too many too many little gears in the system that needs to be rolled in order for the whole thing to run. And if we lose that little kink and then the whole thing gets thrown off. Yeah, but I'll tell you what, yeah. with the way way that cinemas are acting right now, I think that if somebody were to come along and put in a system like that and say, "Look, we're going to charge you a regular ticket price to watch this on your computer, your big your, your big flat screen computer, or pump it over to your TV uh, a week before it's going to be released in the theater in 3D for double the ticket price. You know, just because it's in 3D and not the whole and the whole thing's not in 3D, you're just paying extra because it's a gimmick. Um, I think there are a lot of people out there who would go for that. You know, well, could, on could that day me. I would start uh, on that day I start lamenting the death of cinema. <laughs> you know then then you but you're cinemas the, cinemas doing it to itself with all this 3d garbage you know the studios the, are doing it to us the cinemas are playing they have to play along it's the, the it's the studios that are doing it to us and the studios are gonna keep you know wanting to overcharge us for this for, for this 3d stuff to make as mon- much money as possible this will never this online distribution thing will never happen because that's not the biggest way to profit it's not their best Best way to profit doesn't make them the biggest profit. In fact, they have to figure out technology. They figure out all these things, spend all these extra money for research and de- development, and it doesn't bring them the be- the most profit possible. You know, it's not the cinemas that decide to overcharge us for 3D. It's, it's these distributors who are keen on pushing only 3D movies out so they can get the biggest uh, box office gross possible. Mm-hmm. That's bunk, I tell you. Bunk. <laughs> doesn't matter. It's the end of the world anyway. So <laughs> it's rapture. Yeah, it's yeah. a rapture anyway. So you know. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Let me play this. All right, that sound means it's time to head into our East Screen section 
of the podcast. This week we have one East Screen film to cover, and that is The Detective 2, starring Aaron Kwok uh, from director Oxide Pang. So this is a sequel from the 2007 film. Kevin, why don't you take us through The the Detective 2? Sure. Um, should I really? Um, I did fall asleep. Uh, okay. Detective 2 is the continuation, in a way, of uh, The Detective, um, starring Aaron Kwok, as, uh, who was in the first film kind of a clueless detective who was kind of more in more than he bargained for of a very uh, dangerous supernatural case. Uh, detective 2 kind of continues that um, with a new case for a detective named Tom. Um, this time he's dealing with a serial murderer um, who, whose murders don't seem to have all that much in common with each other, but um, they seem to be done by the same man. Um, Liu Kai-Chi as uh, Tam's police buddy is back. Um, they also added Patrick Tam as his superior. Um, you got John Siu Fai as a, as, a, as a mental patient that they suspect along the way one of the red herrings. Um, and also, there, the film also has a subplot. While, while, while Tam is uh, investigating the case, there's also a subplot about an orphan and his uh, adaptive sister. And um, that kind of plays into the rest of the film in a way that I won't spoil, but you can probably figure out. Um, that's really The Detective too. I mean, there's not that much to say about the film because the whole film is a procedural. And you don't really want to throw out too many of the, the plot points. Um, no more supernatural stuff this time around. Uh, in the first film, they kind of suggested that there was some supernatural ghost thing playing in the whole case. Uh, this time, it's all gone. I can't figure out why. Whether I'm not sure if it's because they want to change up the story a little bit, change up the formula a little bit. Uh, or is it for China? Because this film did get a wide release in China. In fact, I think a week before Hong Kong. Um, so I'm not sure why, but there's no more supernatural stuff in here. It's all about psychological horror. Um, there's also a bit of a change from the first film is that in the first film, the Liu Kai-Chi character, the cop Chuck, he was very much an antagonist to, to Tam's investigation. Uh, every time he comes out, he, he, he very much plays like the guy was trying to stop him from investigating here. He's like a buddy and, and they're getting along and I don't know, it's just kind of, betrayed that that conflict from the first film um especially the ending um and as the case goes along um and as i was like as i was saying that the subplot about the adapted kid and his his sister um that really comes way too obvious uh you know you know how that plays in the plot almost five minutes in. there's not much of a mystery here in this case in fact i think this case isn't as good as the one in the first film um, the case in the first film is very much like a puzzle where you're putting together piece by piece and that, you know, you don't really know what's going to happen next or what piece that Tam is going to find along the way. And when it comes together, you feel like you really invested get, you invested your time into something that's really complicated, something really complex. And there is kind of that, you feel kind of a sense of achievement when you figure it out at the end. Uh, even without the ghost elements, that's actually a fairly good case. Here, the case it's not as compelling and the way that Tam figures it out, uh, the way he channels everything and figures things out, it's almost too simple. Um, the joke of the first film is that, you know, 
Tam wasn't really much of a detective, which is why the film's Chinese title is C plus detective. Uh, C plus also sounds like private in in Chinese, so that's a bit of a wordplay there, you know. But the joke of the first film is that you know Tam isn't really much of an investigator. He just wanders into these places and he 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 runs into a clue, but he's not really putting these things together, you know, like a real detective. But suddenly now he's like this really brilliant detective who are better than the cops. And again, it kind of betrays I think the first film. Um, I did enjoy the little bit of humor in here. Um, there's some dark. Humor, uh, the, the 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 cool Thai pop songs are back, which I love uh, so much that I wish there was more of it, especially in the second half of the film. Um, and by the time the, the the twist comes out and everything is coming together, all the humor is lost, and it's not really that fun of a film anymore. Um, it's kind of a drag to sit through. In fact, I think the ending. Um, does it really bother anyone? And just ask for this out here. Does it bother anyone that the ten minute climax takes place in a hallway you know it just seems like they're working with a reduced budget this time around because in the first film they managed to fit in a car chase that ends with an elephant getting getting hit and they're shooting in the same city they're shooting in bangkok again and i wonder why are they working at such a reduced budget why does it feel like a cheaper film this time around it didn't even seem like anybody had a car in this one yeah it didn't seem like anyone had a car there were no elephants um the whole thing is just less ambitious yeah, it is a very it is a less ambitious sequel, which is kind of a rare thing, and maybe that's really what disappointed me because it really threw away. I wouldn't say threw away, but it's just not. It's, it didn't feel like a step up from the first film, which sequels are supposed to be. Um, and of course, the ending they're setting up for part three, even though the the setting up is totally apart from the plot in in in, in this one. Um, it just feels like they're setting up for a sequel for no particular reason. It's like the end of... I think at the end of the film, we discussed this, and it felt like it was a TV... It was a, 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 a episode in a TV series, and that, you know, they finished the case, and then now they're setting up for the next episode. Um, but I, I don't really want to see it. It doesn't really excite me. I know that it's an element that they, they started since the first film, but it didn't really interest me at all. So, um, Detective 2, I think if you like... Pang Brothers stuff, you're into serial killer movies, you like Aaron Kwok, you're going to see it anyway, but I would suggest that you TV it at best. Um, but if you don't really, you're not interested in any of those things, you've never seen the first film, I would say skip it. Yeah, I, I, I'd say <clears throat> for me, it it did a fair job of carrying on this sense of uh, Asian noir that it's trying to establish. and You know, quite different from sort of traditional film noir aesthetics. And I think that's maybe the most successful thing to come out of the series. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sort of this washed out, dirty, sweaty, um, you know, environment through in which these these mysteries happen. And it's, I, I like that aspect. I, I wouldn't mind seeing more going on here. Um, but what they present in this film, at least, was far less interesting uh, in terms of the overall plot. I think Aaron was fine. Um, I didn't mind the fact that, you know, he's gotten better as a detective. I, I, I mean, like you were saying, in the original one, he kind of stumbled through, but now he's got some experience, so he gets a B-plus instead of a C-plus. So <laughs> he, he's making progress, right? Um, too much I, progress. Too much may, progress. Maybe, but... And there was a couple scenes where he's kind of like, a, you know, um, uh, you know, having a, a beautiful mind moment or <laughs> uh, a Mr. Monk moment. But... For the most part, I was okay. I was okay with that, and 
it, it kind of removed the bad taste that he left in my mouth with City Under Siege. So I was happy for that. Um, but Liu Kai-Chi is definitely still a scene stealer. Even though the nature of their relationship has changed, he still really steals almost all the scenes that he's in um, away from Aaron. And uh, I, I was happy to see him here. Um, although I think that what they ended up doing with him was kind of left me unfulfilled. Mm. Um, the main plot hook, as you, were, as you were talking about, very close to a very famous film. If you've seen that very famous film, you kind of see it coming, and it kind of ruins the whole plot. I won't say any more than that. Um, but there are too many red herrings or too many MacGuffins that are thrown at you. You know, it, it, it tries to make you think... Uh, who the killer might be and but it quickly loses you know it, it's like it just throws it at you and then it quickly moves beyond it and it, it loses the whole mystery about everything that's going on about halfway through but the the second half isn't strong enough to carry through any kind of uh, uh, affinity for the narrative you know I, I just I just stopped liking the what the narrative was trying to do uh, by the end and yeah, I think the red herring definitely didn't work I mean the the cops as a red herring that didn't really go anywhere nor did it really it was all verbally expressed yeah so it never felt real for me that yeah. wasn't that convincing yeah. yeah and scripts have never been a strong point for the bang brothers yeah, yeah. and i think that, um you know the what you mentioned about the you know the last five minutes it, it was just so out of place mm. it's just this little scene that happens in this room to set up you know something that's kind of mentioned earlier in the film briefly but mm. it just seemed so out of place out of context with what you just watched you mm. know at the ending climax and sort of denouement of the film and then they 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 cut to this to make it sort of like a uh empire strikes back moment or something and it, it was just it it didn't really work um and yeah i really don't have much interest in in seeing that as as another film um the the, the main thing i think though is that this is an Oxide Pang film, and it's, I guess it's fine that he's moving beyond his comfort zone in what he's trying to do, but you mentioned that they've gotten away from the supernatural aspect, and that's what they're good at, you know? Mm. Um, even when his films are not good, uh, like uh, Child's Eye, right? Um, at least there's that supernatural, they bring that, super, that sense of supernaturalism or, or, or super, supernatural aesthetic to the story. And if you like that, it, it's something, right? But without that here, it's just kind of, it just ultimately becomes flat. Uh, I think if they would have kept with that as part of the theme, even if it, even if it ultimately has nothing to do with the mystery of what's going on, it would have added more to, to the story. Um, or, or at least from my perspective, I think I would have liked it a little bit more. But um, I think even without the supernatural stuff, the first film was pretty solid, because it has such a, a dense script. Because it, yeah, but it the first film, the film. first film's like hinting at it. You know, it's like mm. kind kind of in the same way that uh, uh, what is it? Uh, the Eye does. You know, it it plays with the aspect is you know is this a medical thing or is this really a supernatural thing? And it mm. kind of goes back and forth. And I and I like that. I like when it sort of rides that line. And it's not letting the audience make a decision one way or the other until mm. it gets much deeper into the film. They could have done that here. 
Um, and I think it would just would have made it a little bit more entertaining for me. Um, Tim, Tim, you you saw an earlier cut of the film. What are, what are some of your thoughts on it? Well, I, I saw it on video, but I think it was the final cut uh, about three months ago. I my problem with the film is Aaron Kwok becoming you know a better detective. Uh, yeah. It does bother me. I, I really enjoyed the whole bumbling character that he had in the first film. I thought that was great. I loved the way he would just cower and, you know, shriek and everything. It, it was wonderful. This time he's just so professional. It, it's such a change. Of course, you understand that, yes, after the first film, maybe he would have, you know, a certain swagger as, as a character, but I... I'm I'm not big on that at all. Mm. It'd be uh, hilarious if he walks in and acts professional, and then he gets everything wrong. I mean, that would be exactly even be funnier. And yeah. that would be in, that would be in step with the first film. Yeah. It, it, I mean, you brought up Monk just before. Imagine if you were watching Monk, and then in season, you know, then in the the next season, he's suddenly you know dropped the obsessive compulsive disorders. Mm, it, yeah, too much you, of a character would, change. Exactly. It just doesn't feel right. So that was actually a really big disappointment for me when I was watching the film. Um, I think the whole point of it setting up the third film is pretty weak in a way. I think that you could probably go into the next detective film because it's inevitable that there must be one. Um, you must be able to go into the next one without really skipping a beat if you've, if you've missed the second film. It's like they tacked on that bit just to remind you that there was, you know, something going on from the first film. Mm. But there's, there's no progression of that aspect in, in uh, the Detective 2. So in a way, I'd say it's skippable uh, because of that. Yeah, I, I, I'd say, you know, if you've got the first film and you enjoy the first film, at least, you know, from a somewhat of an, a visual standpoint... You, you could TV the second film, uh, but it's definitely, I kind of agree with Kevin, it's definitely one that you don't need to rush out and, and see it. And if you're not into the first film at all, you could probably skip it. That's great, it starts with an earthquake. Birds and snakes and airplane. Lenny Bruce is not afraid. I have a hurricane, listen to yourself, turn world, serve its own needs, dummy, serve your own needs, feed it up and not speak. Listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. All right, and we are back. 
I uh, just want to say a quick thanks again to Tim Youngs for stopping by for our East Screen segment. We are here to talk about our West Screen film for this week, and that is the film Priest. Um, this is a film directed by Scott Stewart, um, who's best known for visual effects work. Uh, he's got a ton of stuff uh, for visual effects that he's done. Uh, for directorial work, his probably his most famous film was Legion from a couple years ago which also starred Paul Bettany, who is the main star here, uh, as the character Priest. Uh, the film also features Carl Urban, um, Karn Gigan Gigandit, and uh, Hong Kong Connection, Maggie Q, um, as Priestess. Uh, such, such, you know, classic uh, deep names for some of these characters, right? Um, so, Kevin, you haven't seen Priest, right? No, no, I haven't. Uh, so it's all on me. So basically, what is Priest? Priest is sort of this futuristic uh, alterniverse story, I guess you'd call it, alternate universe story, where mankind has throughout the ages been in battling with the vampire species. Vampires are sort of a, a separate species altogether. Um, the vampire vampires being stronger and faster and uglier, and of course humans being clever and coming up with technology and guns and bombs and these kinds of things. Um, and but mankind seems to still lose and and always uh, gets beaten beaten up by the vampires because of their superior strength and speed. That is until mankind develops the priests, um, a small group commando like group of warrior priests who are able to do battle with the hordes of vampires. Um, sorry, uh, sorry. <laughs> It's funny, it just, isn't it? It's just, it just a group of super... It, why do you have to be priests? Super priests. <laughs> I mean, imagine not, going... It sounds, like like, a, it sounds like a Rick James song. He's a super priest, super priest. He's super priested. No, sorry. Richard, you're like, you're like <laughs> I'm putting down my worldly belongings and I'm going into the, the, the school or the church. And yeah. what I'm going to do, I'm going to kill vampires. It's, exactly, it's kind of exactly what they've set up here for, for the universe. Um, and so this takes place at a sort of an, a, a distant future. And, uh, basically the vampires have supposedly been eradicated and the priests have been forced, uh, disbanded because the church who kind of, the church is the government now. It's a, it's a theocracy that runs everything. Um, and they've moved humanity into this super city that's surrounded by impenetrable walls to protect them from, you know, the, the, the re-emergence of vampires. But even though the vampires are supposedly all destroyed, they like people to stay in the city. city. So it becomes sort of this 1984-ish, um, you know, uh, dictatorial super state where, you know, everything is, is homage to the church and the church is watching you and people go into these automated confession booths um, on a regular basis. But the priests, because the, the, the church feared the priests and the power of the priests, they disbanded them and they made them go do day labor jobs as like, uh, um, you know, sewer workers and sanitation workers and cooks and things. <laughs> um, so this sets up the story and our main protagonist, Paul Bettany, as priest, um, he, he, a relative of his uh, is captured uh, by what he is rumored to believe, uh, vampires. And this sort of sets off the story, and he wants to go and investigate, and the church doesn't want him investigating, so he decides to go rogue, 
So he's now a rogue priest. Um, and he leaves the city and he goes out and he finds um, the vampires have reemerged and he must stop them before they get to the city because they're on a train uh, going to the city and they're going to take over the city when they get there. That's sort of the plot. Um, sound kind of lame because it is. Um, <laughs> I knew nothing about this going in. I haven't read the Korean comic on which this is based. Um, and I'm kind of interested to go back and, and, and read it now to see, you know, what's, what's changed. Uh, the world that is set up here is really interesting. As bad as my description just was, I was kind of really interested in this world. And the, the fact that the director, um, Scott Stewart, is a visual effects person, you know, primarily shows here i mean the visual effects in this are really nice and the the design the cinematography design and and some of the exteriors uh, and the way that they shoot things really sort of bring out this this world and make it interesting and you want to see more of that but they don't give you enough um the world is still very obviously borrowing from other films you'll see a lot of things reminiscent of of blade runner of 1984, of V for Vendetta. Um, there's lots of vampire lore uh, that's going on. A lot of it is is kind of a new take. Some of it's kind of a new take, but a lot of it's borrowed from other places as well. But all of these sort of interesting elements don't make a satisfying whole. The film really becomes just a series of action pieces as the main character goes from place to place to place doing what he needs to do. And basically none of the characters are given enough development you want to know more about these priests about why they can do what they do uh you know about you know how they came to be and, and all of that they don't give you enough of this um the film is extremely short for a film you know that's supposed to be a, um, among the summer blockbusters i'm assuming it's only 87 minutes long and so that so it sort of adds insult to injury when you're sitting there wanting to see more of this stuff, to, to get more background information and background story, and then the film's just suddenly over after a series of, you know, fight one, fight two, fight three. Um, and so when you see what's going on here, and you compare it with a lot of stuff they're doing on TV now, you, you've got to realize as a director, you've got to do more. Um, it's not enough to have an 87 minute film that's not going to spend time, that looks pretty, but is not going to spend time on developing the story, developing the characters, especially I'm assuming something that's based on a comic book, which probably has better development written into it. So I don't know what happened. I don't know if they cut stuff out, but this, the whole thing just feels like a, a preview setup for something to come, right? It's like, it's like a, 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 a big long trailer basically for the next part um, which I'm interested to seeing but I'm kind of angry that they didn't show me more um, but when you see I mean uh, we were talking before about uh, TV shows and mentioning like things like Game of Thrones and some of the stuff they're doing on not not prime prime network TV but some of the cable shows now it's it's really pretty decent, you know. It's got good effects, good production values, good art direction. And for a film to come out and be less than a lot of the stuff that we're seeing on TV, you know, directors making films are really going to have to up their game with stuff like this going on. 
Um, there are some nice little vampire references, as I mentioned, one being the fact that they got actor Stephen Moyer uh, to play a role here. He's got a minor role. Um, if you watch True Blood on HBO, um, he's obviously the main character, Bill, in that. This film was released by Tokyopop, which is kind of weird because I didn't know that... I think we might have talked about this before. I didn't know Tokyopop was getting into film. Mm. And they've been very controversial for their handling of a lot of the manga being distributed in the U.S. There was a big thing about... Um, a big outcry when they did their initial de-release because, if I remember correctly, they they changed some elements, like uh, one of the one character who practices uh, uh, Enjo Kosai uh, compensated dating... They kind of got rid of that whole arc, and that's a pretty important arc for the mm. for that story, if you know that story. And you know, they said, well, they're trying to target a younger audience than what the original target of initial D was for in Japan. And but you know, purists came out and were against them. And apparently, they've closed down a big portion of their American uh, manga section now, I guess, and uh, they're not doing that well. Uh, but here they are making film. Hopefully, I, they can make they, better film. <laughs> would it probably put their name on it because they might hold the rights to the comic, which officially, I guess, makes them a producer. Yeah. I mean, that could be it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, Maggie Q, you know, Hong Kong Connection, as I mentioned, comes in as one of the other priests, or her, being, her name being known as Priestess here. Uh, she's okay. She's kind of just being Maggie Q, going around doing some action um, in some places. She holds her own. I, you you want to know more about her as well. You're, you're never really given enough. Um, Carl Urban, who I loved in Star Trek as Dr. McCoy, and I thought he was great as one of the... I can't remember his name, but he was a villain in uh, the Riddick movie, um, the Chronicles of Riddick. And, you know, here he's he's got, you know, an interesting character. The You know, the costuming's neat, the art direction's neat. Um, you want to know more about him too, but he's just like this two-dimensional villain. Uh, and so, yeah, it just goes, like I said, from fight to fight to fight, two-dimensional villain, two-dimensional main character, and, okay, then it ends. And you have to wait for part two, if you're ever going to see a part two. Um, which, based on the reviews that this has been getting on things like Rotten Tomatoes and whatnot, probably not going to see. So, I guess you'll have to check out the comic. Um, what would be, what would be my review? I'd say, uh, you know, TV it, if it, especially if it's going to be coming on cable, like if you've got the sci-fi channel or something and it's going to come on and you don't have to pay for it. Um, otherwise you gotta, you gotta skip it. Cause this is a 3d film and they're, they were charging 3d prices. Um, if you're, a, if you're a desperate sci-fi nut like myself and you're going to go out and see it, don't see it in 3d. Because the 3D is useless here, it wasn't it wasn't all that great, um, and see it as cheaply as possible. You know, go to a matinee or a morning show, because 87 minutes is you're not getting your money's worth. Yeah, priest, priest. Pray. Here, let me let me play 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 this song of sadness. <laughs>
So I'm very sad. So I'm playing oh. Enigma's Sadness. Uh, I do have a question, Paul. Does this yeah. sound like... Uh, it sounded like Priest was going to be like a futuristic vampire version of the Searchers. Is that? Did it end up being like that at all? Uh, was it like that? I mean, it's kind of... It's It's got like this whole kind of... How to say? Future... It's future, but it's like a Western because mm -hmm. you've got these people living outside the city who've mm -hmm. rejected the church and they're kind of like on the frontier. So they're like little frontier towns. And, you know, then there's this train that's racing back to the city to bring all these vampires to the city and, and try and invade the city. So, yeah, it's 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 mixing genres around. Um, and again, the, the, the art direction, the aesthetic is nice. Um, you know the costuming is is interesting some of the fight scenes are, are okay but it's very matrix style you know they jump around and then suddenly oh slow motion and then you know back to back to fighting things that aren't there basically because all the all the vampires are these they're these um you know cgi things basically mm -hmm. of course um and then they if the vampire bites you it can make you into a uh what did they call them I can't remember, but basically, like the vampire slave, right? Um, and you you will like become their servant. And I mean, it was it was the lore was interesting, the setup was interesting, the universe was interesting, the, the plot was just lame. So yeah, yeah. Um, what are you gonna do? I can feel your sadness now. Yeah, my sadness. All right. <laughs> um. So let's see, where are we at? Comments. We got some comments last time. We talked about one of those in the news section, but we got a couple more to talk about. Um, let's see if I can find my notes. Matt S. Yeah, Matt S. He wrote in last time. He said, isn't Keanu also rumored to star in the upcoming Cowboy Bebop movie? Um, I didn't know they were doing an upcoming Cowboy Bebop movie, but... I think, yeah, I think he's was, he was always been attached to it for a while, but nothing's coming out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. We'll have to we'll have to to wait. You know, anime is kind of a funny thing. They, I I was talking with somebody last week, and they said that uh, uh, Toby Maguire has the Robotech uh, Macross rights, and you know, is it would be cool if he would actually do something with it. You know, him being a, a playing a, the Rick Hunter character, the Hikaru Ichijo character from Macross. I you know. I don't know which he actually has, if he has only Robotech or he has, you know, the original Macross. Um, I loved Robotech as a kid growing up until I realized what it was, that it was this hybridization of three different anime series that weren't related. Mm -hmm. um, and then I got, to, you know, the, the, the originals. I, I'm kind of a little bit against Robotech now because of that. But if he were to do it and do it well, I still think I'd, I'd love to see it. Um, although I'm afraid it would end up being a lot like Space Battleship Yamato. Um, he goes on... Move is wonderful. Ah. <laughs> End of the world. Ah. Um, he goes on to say, for East Screen, I've been watching some fun B-movies lately, Future Cops. Yeah, that's, it, it doesn't get funner than Future Cops. Um, if you like your st Street Fighter Dragon Ball remixed movies thrown in with comedy and Wong Jing and all kinds of craziness... Um, yeah, there's nothing like that. Uh, Naked Killer, Thunder Cops, and so on. Um, oh dear, I thought he meant Future X Cops. And then, yeah, I don't that's, know, that's, like, that's a different story altogether. <laughs> um, 
And, and he says, uh, nothing like these films to remind you why you got into Hong Kong movies in the first place. Do you have any recommendations for him? Um, I don't know. You know Future Cops is, is, is great, crazy, fun. Um, I, I can't, I'm trying to think back to the old stuff. Um, anything with Andy Lau, for me, like the crazy companies, um, and any of the cheesy comedies that he did is always, you know, I always love that stuff because I'm, I'm a bit of an Andy Lau nut for early, early Andy Lau. Um, dances, uh, is it a dance with a dra- dance with dragon or dances with dragons, depending on which, which version you have is another sort of fairy tale Cinderella story <laughs> that I just, it's, it's, it's cruddy in terms of what it does, but it's just fun. Um, so I don't know. You got any over the tops that you'd recommend for him, Kev? I have a guilty, guilty pleasure. That's I guess more recent. It was kind of the tail end of that, that whole genre. I really like Comment in Las Vegas. Oh, yeah, the, com- <laughs> the, the, the Comment series, yeah. The Comment in Las Vegas, not the Comment two thousand two. That was too, too serious for his own good. But Comment in Las, the Comment in Las Vegas. That's Andy Lau and Nat Chan's in it. And Alex Mann yeah. gets his face in a poop that is shaped like Mickey Mouse. I mean, that's kind of the over the top lowbrow stuff i guess that that i miss they don't really make them anymore these days because they're considered lowbrow and people wouldn't really go see them in the cinemas so yeah these movies they don't make them like them like yeah. like them anymore the and best that's... the best attempt is, is something like men suddenly in love oh dear god why <laughs> why do you remember? why do why do you remind me uh, oh, yeah why? i just saw the poster oh. for microsex office it's gonna be terrible beach it's spike be terrible. today yeah beach spike actually if, if these people have any any creativity, you know, stuff like Beach Spike and Men Suddenly in Love and Michael Sex Office should be fun, but they end up being not yeah. because, you know, it's for whatever reason. Copying a lot of the same old gags and stuff. Yeah, that's the problem is really bring back the same old gags that have come up with new ones. And they, they, work on, they work on what worked before, not realizing that you bring them back, it doesn't work. Yeah. So that, that's the problem. Uh, let's see. He says, for West Screen, I've been checking out some quirky documentaries via iTunes and Netflix Monster Camp and Darkon, um, looking at live-action role-playing or LARPing, where people basically dress up like they're in Lord of the Rings or something, and they go out and basically play a role-playing game, but using real costumes and, and sticks for swords and things. I've seen Monster Camp, and it's a it's a fun documentary um, for what it does. I haven't seen Darkon yet, um, but yeah, both of those are good if you're kind of interested in in seeing that more extreme version of uh, people and their entertainment, um, Hell House, he says, documents the planning and performance of a yearly religious haunted house in suburban Dallas. Um, and they substitute traditional holiday horrors with modern day hot button issues like abortion and AIDS in an attempt to sway unbelievers. And I guess they're probably those same guys out there putting up signs saying, today's our last day. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's that. Um, and Tinlan Lao, Gary says, technically Keanu Reeves is part Asian. His dad is half Chinese, so that makes Keanu quarter Chinese. Um, and that means he owes 25% of his uh, salary in taxes to the CCP, right? <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know. Um, yeah, that's... Yeah. No, Keanu is really the closest thing hollywood has to like a asian american leading man because he is part well who was uh, what is it uh brandon lee <clears throat> whatever i'm not sure what, i mean, I've, we, I've seen him in bit parts and stuff but he really hasn't had a leading role since uh dragon right 
Oh, you mean Jason Scott Lee? Oh, so, like, so, sorry. Brandon, uh, yes. Brandon yeah, Lee. No, sorry. <laughs> sorry, Brandon. <laughs> uh, yeah, Jason Scott Lee. Um, yeah, Jason Scott Lee was, I think, was, was uh, try- in the 90s, he was kind of aimed to be a big leading man, but yeah. never worked out. Uh, closest thing we have to Asian-American lead actor now is John Cho, John Cho and Karen yeah. Kumar. Um, you know, we don't count Jackie Chan and, and Jet Li because I, I, they're still throwing out that martial arts stick and that... To me, is a very Asian American-y, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, I think I don't know, I'll take what I can get, and if Keanu Reeves is part Asian American, then he's one of ours. Yeah. Um, I, you know, the problem with Keanu is he's <laughs> too old for the role of Canada. We've said we've I've, I think I've said that before, but he's too old mm. for that role. Mm. Um, you know, get get a young kid. There there are plenty of young kids who are striving to be actors, and you know, give some newbies a shot and just go with it. You know. That's that's my advice. Take it or not, Hollywood. It's your last day. East Green, West Green. Yeah, I think that's it for the show. Uh, I want to say a big thanks again to Tim Youngs for stopping by and sharing his thoughts on Udine and other things with us. Um, you can always visit us at the website at www.concast.com. Or you can check in with us at iTunes. Drop us a review over there if you like what you hear, or even if you don't. Uh, you can follow along on Twitter with uh, twitter.com slash concast. Or you can follow the daily musings of Mr. Ma, while they last, uh, on twitter.com slash thegoldenrock. That's one word. Or you can email us at the show. You can email eastscreen at gmail.com. And you can send along um, a question uh, a short review, short thoughts on something you saw, or even a short little audio file, if you'd like, and we might just play it here on the show. Final thoughts, Mr. Ma? Uh, I am tweeting right now. Oh my god, world is ending! Oh wait, my neighbor is doing renovations. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're gonna do renovations, you might as well get them done now. <laughs> you know, there's I mean, nothing seriously. There's nothing like working up on the roof, banging that hammer, and then poof, you're in heaven. You got you a know. money shot right there, you know. It's great. <laughs> no, it's just it's just if you lived in Hong Kong, these in these residential buildings, you know what I mean. You know, when they start doing renovations and they're literally like right on the other side of that wall, it's yeah. it's like the end of the world, man. And it it's, doesn't even have to be renovations. It's like when the lady upstairs is chopping the evening vegetables. <laughs> it's like she's right there in my head. You know, I just can't get away from her. Brain. Yes. Um, so yeah, there's that. Uh, next show, episode sixty-six, um, should be earlier next week. Hopefully, I'll be feeling back to my normal self, and we'll still be here. <laughs> um, but we'll be talking about Gantz, Perfect Answer, and huh? Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. Um, so that'll be our show for next time. Uh, last minute thoughts, Kevin? Um, no, I mean, uh, I hope we all survive the end of the world and all, and I hope after the end of the world, there will still be internet, and their Starbucks will still have Wi-Fi, because God knows how 3G reception will be after that. Mm. Um, yeah, hope all we right. all survive this. Yeah, so yes. we'll see you either on the flip side or on the 22nd, whichever comes first. So until next time, we'll wish you a good rapture and good viewing, and we'll see you then. See you next time, everybody. Sweet.